Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And joining us this week, I have the pleasure of Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner, who are the authors of a book that's releasing today called Can Legal Weed Win? Welcome aboard, gentlemen. Thank you. I, I enjoyed reading your book. You know, it was irreverent and yet serious in terms of the, uh, the topics and the subject matter. And, you know, there was a lighthearted touch to it, which is always necessary with, with such a serious topic with regards to legalization and how it'll impact an industry. And, you know, with everything that's going on and people are, you know, can legal weed win? That's a, a huge topic for people because people expect, of course, the Safe Banking Act to come into play uh, at some point in the near future. One never knows when, but legalization to follow. And... Your premise, can legal weed win? Is the term legalization misleading? Uh, I'll take a first crack at that because Robin and I have, have argued about that a good bit. And in fact, at one point, uh, and in fact, we say in the book that uh, in some ways, what happened in the United States was closer to illegalization for some producers mm -hmm. in some states. The California system, for example, the medical uh, cannabis was available to consumers who, who got the, the permit, the medical permit, uh, in a system that was untaxed and relatively lightly regulated. And when we went to adult use legalization with the proposition that began to be implement, passed in 2016, but began to be implemented in 2018, People who had been in the medical uh, cannabis, medical marijuana, they called it, uh, found lots of what they were doing now illegal. Mm -hmm. And they had to apply for licenses. Often that meant they had to apply at the local level, go through a bunch of hoops. Uh, and they ended up saying, wait, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. This is more trouble than it's worth, actually. And going to double the price to my consumers. And so it became a real mess for lots of people that thought they were legal before. No, absolutely. And, you know, Daniel, that's a really good point with regards to it. And, you know, as, as we look forward, you know, some states are learning from others. Obviously, you know, New York, which is coming online today, can learn from California. But also states can learn from in terms of regulatory framework and what people are going to have to adhere to from foreign jurisdictions that have already gone through this, you know, Canada being one of the most notable, but also Europe with all of the compliance standards. Um, will the national legalization help the U.S. cannabis businesses in ways that are unexpected, or do you believe that they're going to be impacted in, uh, and thrown offside in ways that are also unexpected and unplanned for? Well, this is something that we talk about in the book and that we've, we've been thinking about a lot. And basically, uh, there are a lot of open questions about what form federal legalization will take uh, that will, uh, for a large part, determine whether it's helpful or unhelpful uh, for the U.S. cannabis industry as a whole. If the, if the federal government decides to legalize while adding a whole new level of taxes and regulations on top of the ones that are uh, in, being uh, enforced in the states right now, that could actually make a difficult situation worse for, a lot of, for, for folks in a lot of states who are still trying to figure out how to comply with all the various regulations and, and, and make, th make ends meet with all the taxes. Um, one thing's for sure though, when federal legalization happens, it'll enable interstate trade 
And mm -hmm. it, that'll be- Do you be, think that happens uh, right away? Or do you think states will maintain barriers as long as they can? I think that uh, under the US Constitution with the Commerce Clause, it'll, it'll basically happen right away. I mean, you know, some states, if they want to, can try to enact protectionist measures and say, you can't ship weed from another state into my state, but uh, we doubt that would hold up uh, under constitutional scrutiny. Uh, one way that the one way that they'll be able to be protectionist, maybe for maybe hold that hold out, um, would be to say, you can ship weed into my state, but you have to meet our local standards. Uh, for example, testing standards. So they could try to impose their standards on out-of-state products, and and use that as a way of preventing other states' st cheaper stuff from getting into states that have relatively higher uh, priced weed and higher regulations uh, on on safety testing and things like that. But, but over but in the with... long run. With, sorry, but with federal legalization, doesn't the FDA standards become really the, the national standard that everybody has to adhere to? Not uh, necessarily. Uh, let me just give you an example. We're, we're sitting, uh, you could look at Massachusetts, for example. They've got standards that say only cage-free eggs can be sold in Massachusetts. Right. But that's not a federal standard. It, and it's a standard about what egg grown in Iowa can be shipped into, into Massachusetts. And that turns out they don't produce any eggs in Massachusetts. That's not a big deal. California has something. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it's, so it's not protecting the local industry. It's who knows. California has, has a standard. We don't have any pigs to speak of in California. We have a standard that says the mother sow of the pig that turns into a pork chop that's shipped to California. Are you with me? That mother sow has to be uh, housed according to California standards, a lot of those sows are in Winnipeg. You know, mm -hmm. the, it's not just Minnesota, it's Manitoba here. And, yep. and yet this California standard for what can be shipped into California is in front of the Supreme Court next term. It will f the, and, and that could actually relate to exactly the question that you're raising, can, Richard, which is to what extent can a can a a state or a local jurisdiction for that matter, put restrictions on that are essentially protectionist. And, 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 and that's a part of it. I, Robin and I, uh, uh, I like to say, uh, let cannabis be kale. That is just let it, let it go. You, it doesn't need taxes. It doesn't need a bunch of federal regulations. We've got, uh, at least in the United States, lots and lots of cannabis regulations at the state and local level, lots and lots of taxes at the state and local level. We do not need another. Rob, Robin, uh, more likely to say, let weed be watermelon. Uh, the same point. Uh, it, just just let them go. And, and we don't need subsidy programs. We don't need taxes. We don't need regulations by the feds because that is likely to just add a level of complication that'll drive more weed to the illegal market. Well, and that happened in Canada, right, where the government applied a minimum tax of a dollar per, per gram uh, or 10% of the uh, retail price. And the net effect was the, you know, where sales did go up, they went up more rapidly in uh, illegal sources than they did through the dispensaries. Yeah. And, and it, it, it is a, a, a problem that every regulator at every level they all want to do good things. They're not, you know, we're not talking about people that, that want to destroy the industry, maybe some, but mostly they want to do good things. So let's make sure the product's safe. 
Let's make mm-hmm. sure there's social equity with respect to who gets to be the entrepreneur. Let's make sure the stores are not in vulnerable areas next to, I don't know, churches or schools or some favored venue. All of those things are costly. Let's, right. let's make sure that we don't allow cannabis to be sold where alcohol is also sold. Let's make sure we don't let cannabis be uh, sold after 10 p.m. at night. All of these kind of regulations, and they vary by every jurisdiction. Every one of them, somebody could come up with some reason that they like, and every one of them is costly, and every one of them encourages cannabis consumers and producers to either stay in or enter the illegal market. And that's a real challenge for regulation. We, we don't claim it's easy. Uh, we just claim it's really important to think about this industry in that context. Well, and it also will be affected by the international trade trying to come into the States, which you is going to add a whole other layer. Yeah, so NAFTA, yeah, not only NAFTA will, and cannabis. Yeah. yeah, not only will California, which in spite of being one of the uh, the biggest weed, the biggest weed producer in, the, in America, not, but it's also one of the more expensive ones, not only will they have to compete with cheap weed from uh, from Wyoming or Oklahoma, they'll also have to compete with even cheaper, possibly weed from Mexico. Uh, that's oh, yeah. that may be further down the road. Federal legalization might might not immediately bring about free international trade in weed, but it'll happen some sometime. In the book, and can legal weed win? We say uh, we we have uh, one of our later chapters. We say. It's called weed in 2050. And we're pretty sure that weed in Mm -hmm. 2050, they're not going to just be facing interstate competition, but you'll be facing international competition too. We'll be facing international competition and the applications of the product are going to be so much more diverse. Um, You know, and the pharmaceuticals at that point will have figured out how they can participate. They're going to have products that are going to be affected. They're not going to want the same barriers and companies like Coca-Cola who will look or others that look for wellness products as they term it, you know, CBD and infused or otherwise, they also are not going to care, you know, stand for the state barriers or international barriers to prevent them bringing in product no more than they do sugar. Sugar is an interesting case because in the United States, we have huge trade barriers for sugar. So the price Mm -hmm. of not corn sweetener, but sugar is about triple in the United States than it is outside the United States. And, and there was a case where the sugar industry, and one could imagine the, the U.S. cannabis industry saying similar things. Wait a second. Uh, compete with Canada. We're happy to compete with Canada, but whatever you do, don't let Bolivia in our market or, or Mexico right. or, or somebody else. Yeah. Uh, one thing to recognize is that cannabis is so in uh, the, the value proposition on cannabis is so large at the farm level that it doesn't take much space. You know, it, it's, it's yep. a, a, a few thousand acres. So out of, out of the millions of acres of cropland in North America, a few thousand acres will grow all the cannabis, all the outdoor cannabis you want, maybe a thousand acres of greenhouse space or indoor space will generate lots and lots more of those products. So, you really, um, it, it, we don't run into resource constraints in the way that you do growing corn or wheat. You know, this is the, the news these days about, gee, wheat markets have gone, gone crazy. Or, or even when it comes to irrigation water, which the Western United States is very sensitive to, to these right. days, uh, that's not going to be a cannabis issue. 
Every drop of water of cannabis is generating $1,000 of revenue. We don't have to worry about cannabis competing for water. And it, and it won't use very much in the grand scheme of things. You know, if you think, right. put it next to alfalfa or almonds, uh, cannabis is going to be a trivial, trivial amount of those kind of resources. A lot of labor, but yeah. not a lot of those natural resources. Well, and you bring you bring up the point that uh, Stephen Murphy made on last week's show, which is it's not a supply question. It's more more today. It's a question of where's the demand and how's the demand going to shift and grow into other products, because people have built more than enough supply. It's a qu- cost question, yeah. of course, always. But yeah, it's not the supply issue, gentlemen. We yeah, do we have, have to take a short. Yep. Oh, sorry. sorry go ahead. Sorry, we do have to take a short break, but I'd love to come back to more of that with uh, Daniel Sumner and Robin Goldstein, the authors of the book, Can Legal Weed Win? Releasing today, June 14th. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner, the authors of the book, Can Legal Weed Win? And, you know, before the break, we were talking about some of the um, international questions that fall into it. But you know, one of the things that we didn't really touch upon yet is will legalized cannabis measure up from an economic standpoint the way everybody thinks about it and which areas of the market are likely to really benefit more and which areas are going to be much more constrained than they are today? Let me take a, an initial crack. And I know Robin's got lots of views and in, in, in thoughts and analysis on this uh, from what we're seeing now and really thinking about the future, the challenge on the cost side is mm-hmm. which legal products can carry the burden, so to speak, of additional regulations, additional restrictions and taxes, all the mm-hmm. things that come along with being legal. And it looks to us like the highest end products, the stuff that rich people consume can sort of carry that burden. You add an extra 10 bucks or 20 bucks or some taxes and uh, uh, Robin's friends, the, the hedge fund uh, operators, uh, they can buy the high end stuff and not worry about it. The people that will remain in the illegal market may be the great bulk of low end uh, cannabis consumers who are price sensitive. And right. that's at least one part of, of, your, uh, of the answer for you. The other part is the geographic diversity uh, throughout North America, Canada and the United States. And there are some jurisdictions where uh, because of a little more manageable regulatory framework and a little more manageable set of taxes, legal has done better against illegal. And to the extent that other places can emulate that, they can help legal weed win as well. Yeah, just to pick up on that, I would say, uh, you know, you can look at the cannabis market as being broken up into everyday normal weed and then high-end weed. And, uh, and the, the battle for normal weed, that's a race to the bottom and on the price side. So yep. the, the, it'll, get, it'll end up getting shipped between states and, and between countries um, from the places that can produce it uh, most cheaply and efficiently to everyone else. Uh, on the, let's say, 10% of the market, that's the high side, that's, that's the high end side, as with wine, where you have fancy Napa Valley Cabernet that people are, are willing to uh, spend extra for. Uh, that'll be a battle of who can establish themselves on a marketing uh, side, on the marketing side as being the premium uh, denominations of origin for premium weed. And so, for example, British Columbia, where you guys are, Vancouver weed has a, 
a strong reputation for many years as being really high quality. Some parts of California do, Massachusetts uh-huh. might, but um, it's going to be an interesting uh, shakedown in terms of, you know, uh, who can, it's not just a question of what's, what's the highest quality. It's also what can you put, what, what will consumers buy into and, and how can it be marketed uh, in the consumer's minds to, to think of the places that are premium weed uh, de- uh, denominations or regions of origin. So, you know, under that, and of course, it's an economic driver. How quickly do you think there's going to be the equivalent of a two buck chuck in the cannabis industry? I think there already is. And, you know, yeah. uh, uh, Richard, um, I, I, I want to make a real clarification for our listeners, because when, when we say price, it's per unit of some sort of potency or something in the cannabis business. We all know yeah. you can buy cheap weed that's got very low potency. Mm-hmm. And and uh, or 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 more expensive weed for more potency. But if you think of it per unit 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 of potency, uh, then you can say, gee, at the high end on special occasions, you buy a brand that you associate with 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 being nice. And we know that in the wine business, Robinson very influential wine papers where he does blind tastings and people don't know what the hell they're buying. Yep. They can't tell <laughs> the difference. That's so true. But, but <laughs> on the other hand, yeah, if no you show idea. them. If you show them the label and it's got some romantic story on it, it's what you you buy, uh, you know, on on uh, 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 Valentine's Day or Halloween, depending on your taste. Yep. And and I, I have a I have wines I call brother-in-law wines. I wouldn't want it doesn't matter the quality. My brother-in-laws don't know wine, but they do like to know that I spent some real money on them. It makes them feel good. So I buy expensive, high priced wine with that from a region that is known to be high priced. Right. They, they yeah, feel good. I the, feel good. The, that's great. And you get it at the discount store that's that's marked yeah. it down because it's their last lot. <laughs> yes. And you're telling the secrets now, Robin. Uh, <laughs> the corked wine shop. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, with that, you know, with that move and, you know, there's the there's the craft growers for want of a better term who are going to always make a premium product and then there's going to be the mass market product but does that as a le- as a legal uh, bifurcation in the marketplace or bifurcation that happens really nationally after legalization does that make for a, a smarter or fairer market I, I like markets that give people choices so mm-hmm. uh, you know Robin's going to buy Snoop Dogg weed because uh, that's a, that's that's you know his music, and and you know I'll buy Mozart weed because that's my music, and uh, or vice versa, and and you know that's fine. They're both in the market. If they're both there, they pick a little demographic. The market's going to be big enough, and the product has enough variability in it, even if the variability is mostly just labeling. That's fine. Yeah. Let let I think let the, let things go free. Yeah, and I think the important thing there is that. Uh, are consumers smart or not? They're not just buying uh, the the what's inside the package. They're not. You you could take uh, a nug from a from a fancy premium legal uh, weed provider, and you can take something you buy in the street that's that's very low level, and you you can roll it up and smoke it, and you may or may not be able to tell the difference which which is which or identify which is which. But you're not just buying like with wine. You're not just buying what's inside the package, you're also buying the package. The package can be beautiful, the package can be, can be well-designed and, and, and fun to open and, and, and make a nice gift. And so, you know, p- when people choose nicer packages, 
or, or products with, with nicer reputations over other ones, they're not just being stupid. They're, they're just valuing uh, uh, products, other, uh, they're valuing char product characteristics other than just the sensory attributes of the, what's inside the package. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one part of consumer education is also it's not they're buying what's in legal cannabis, they're buying what's not in the package, right? It is a package that's contaminant free. It has been tested. It's safe. It's not going to have any deleterious effects five and 10 years from now, which is a challenge with product that doesn't come from the legal markets. Uh, that that's exactly right, Richard. And and so one of the things people pay extra if they can afford it, and uh, one of the things that people pay extra for in the legal weed market is is safety and security. At the same time, as we shifted uh, from a relatively unregulated uh, medical uh, system in a number of U.S. states to to a much more heavily taxed uh, adult use. It's not always true that, that the more regulations improve the product when the individual company's reputation really matters. Mm -hmm. So uh, one reason some people like to buy national brands, for example, is they say, oh, well, the national brand has a lot riding on this. Their reputation matters to them. So I, I figure their food will be safer or their products will be safer than somebody else's. Other people say, no, no, I want to buy local because I trust the people in my neighborhood. You know, I know where they live. I know where that right. farm is, and I trust that one. So trust can be for a lot of reasons outside of a government regulation. And, and where the government can contribute, if people trust the government, is, is with a, an open and, and well-understood certification system. And, and that can be a positive contributor. The challenge is to do that without doubling the price. Absolutely. And does that also become an association question, just like it does for, you know, in going back to the liquor industry for wines, where there's denominations that are controlled? Yeah. And that's coming with cannabis. We have mm -hmm. uh, appellations of origin uh, for cannabis already in some state regulations. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, sorry, appellation is the English word. I was thinking in French. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> The the oh, that is coming that yeah. is coming and that you know that's a big part of consumer uh, confidence. The, and, and of course, you don't have to have regulations for that. You know, there mm -hmm. you you can put. Uh, uh, Robin has preferences for certain brand names from certain uh, blenders and seed and certain seed strains in Western Massachusetts because he knows those people and and uh, and they he trusts them. Not necessary. He doesn't need a government regulation to tell him that he wants to trust those people. These days, uh, it's still a very young industry right. and consumers are just like taking baby steps in, turn, in terms of understanding what the hell they're getting when they're buying a package of weed, uh, whether it's flour or vape pens or gummies or, or whatever. So I think over time, you know, right now, there's probably going to be an a, a incredible over-reliance on what it says in the package. And, and over time, as consumers get more educated and savvy about what they're getting, they may start to be able to discriminate between products based on, uh, on, on how it actually makes you feel or, or how it tastes or the terpenes or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how, how some companies are able to, you know, uh, build their reputations based on something more than just marketing in the future.
but it's, it's an uphill battle. Just consumer education. It's just at, in its infancy. Consumer education is so is such a massive component of it. And, you know, that's just even in the adult use side on the on the medical side, the education of physicians on the application of the products for different conditions is, you know, so early in its infancy and so poorly done by, you know, companies have been around for a long time in, in legalized jurisdictions that it's uh, impeding the progress. We, um, one big advantage of federal uh, legalization in the United States would be opening up for biomedical research in ways that it's just not now and, and funding and the like. Uh, Canada may have a big head start there uh, in, in terms of this sort of uh, research base for medical uh, uses. That's not to discount the word of mouth sort of, uh, but, but we really don't have the, the individual studies that have been done with blind, uh, uh, you know, triple blind kind of uh, uh, surveys and things like that. No, absolutely. And, you know, I'd love to come back to that again after we just have to take one more break. We'll be back in a moment with Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner, the authors of the new book, Can Legal Weed Win? I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner, the authors of Can Legal Weed Win? And um, gentlemen, you know, as you were putting the book together, you obviously needed a lot of input and insights from people across the industry, from regulatory regulators, legislators, and participants at every stage. How was the outlook? What were people really afraid of and looking forward to from that perspective of, and what's the timeline that each of the groups thinks is realistic for weed cannabis to be legalized? It's, I mean, we've, it's been very interesting. People we talk to in, in, in researching the book, I mean, everyone has a completely different perspective. Uh, you know, we worked in, at UC Davis uh, in our group. We've worked with California state regulators and helping them uh, anticipate the costs and benefits of, of, of regulations they're trying to put together. We talked to people who are in the uh, who are on the activist side. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's people who've been fighting their whole lives, fighting the good fight for trying to get uh, just trying to free people from prison. That's, you know, the number one goal of, of a lot of people who've been fighting for this for 30, 40 years. Uh, uh-huh. There's people who are just unjustly in prison for minor weed offenses uh, for something that issue. most people right. uh, don't, don't even believe should be illegal. And, um, and, and it's uh, a huge issue that breaks down along race lines as well, isn't it? it certainly is. Absolutely. And, it's yeah. yeah. Go ahead. R- Robin, horrible. Uh, Robin put together a chapter uh, uh, called Sabrina's story that summarizes uh, uh, a lady who, who he's, he's uh, been an acquaintance of for many years and got to know a little bit and to see the evolution of her thinking ab- ab- about this. She was, she had thought to, she, by the time she was in California, she thought, gee, we'll make it legal and that'll solve the problems. And it didn't solve some problems, but mm-hmm. but it didn't really do everything she wished it would. Uh, right. I, th- I think some people were over optimistic. In terms of horizon, um, there there are a long variety of horizons. There are a number of people that have left the business. There are mm-hmm. lots. 
there are a number of people that have lost a, a lot of money uh, in cannabis and uh, uh, they've left that money. But uh, there are others that still feel like they, they have a, a good potential in the future. And, and there is still a lot of potential because it is an industry in its infancy, as you mentioned earlier, Robin. And, you know, with that, you know, the fundamental premise of the book and statements, the, you know, the title, Can Legal Weed Win? But more importantly, how does legal cannabis win and who does it win against? Yeah, we say can legal weed win? First question, who, who uh, a win against who? And the answer is illegal weed. So you've got this illegal uh, weed industry that's existed for 100 years in, in America and Canada. Uh-huh. And the, uh, uh, they've, they've been thriving. And uh, people, people, consumers who've been buying their stuff from someone they know and trust for many years, suddenly you, you legalize, you, you know, one day you wake up, it's January 1st of some year and your state or your province has legalized. Um, and the idea is, oh, do you suddenly start, you wake up that day and you go to the, you suddenly go to the legal weed store down the street that looks like a pharmacy and you start buying your weed there or do you just call the person you've been buying from all along and you know their stuff is good? It's not so simple. And, and there was, there's a naivete in the views of, I think, some uh some of the legalization initiatives or ballot regulations that everyone's going to just suddenly shift to the legal market when it's available. It doesn't happen. And, and it's no, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Unless there's you know, a strong economic it, incentive, it won't happen. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you'd, you'd stop buying from your favorite dealer. Who's getting, giving you great stuff. If, if you could save money by going to the legal store, but the reality is you're spending more to go to the legal store. So the, uh, when you put together these regulations and and and, and legal systems, uh, you know you the, the the policymakers would be well advised to keep in mind the fact that that the, that you need to actually uh, put uh, put together something that creates advantages for the legal market, not disadvantages, not just paying twice as much. So right uh, and a co- and the cost side, you know the most important thing I think is making it competitive cost wise. Uh, and that's then that's something that they've failed to do in many places where it's been legalized and not because they weren't aware of this. You know, we don't okay. want we we're very careful not to criticize the regulators themselves, because many times their hands are tied. There was a there was a law they yeah. have to comply with for setting the regulations. But secondly, um, they've been g- given very clear instructions, make this product safe. Well, how safe? Yeah. Oh, make it perfectly safe. Well, of course, that's really costly. And most consumers don't want that. You know, we're not willing to pay for that for anything else. Uh, cars aren't perfectly safe. Uh, nothing else we have is perfectly safe. So, but there was this idea that, gee, we'll, we'll get all our wishes combined in this cannabis product. And, and uh, that's been uh, an impossible uh, thing to achieve. And, and, but the attempt has been expensive along the way. And that's a, a really uh, crucial notion. It's it's not that people have have the wrong uh, motivations, or you know, some of them maybe, but but it's that it's just a very hard task. Uh, and and then the same with people who want to uh, get tax money. It turns out they have great ideas for what they can do with the tax revenue, but first you got to collect it, 
And if if the people you want to collect taxes for have an untaxed product that they've already been buying from, as Robin says, a guy they already know, uh, it, it's a tough proposition. So it's we don't, we don't want to consumer behavior. Yeah, so we don't want to make it sound easy. Now, twenty five percent of the uh, wheat sold in the United States is is legal, maybe more than that in some places. And so, how do you expand that? Not thinking you're going to go to a hundred percent next year, but how do you expand that? And one thing. Uh, I think everyone agrees on we don't want to go back on the old go back to the bad old days when uh, some teenage kid in, a, in some city neighborhood gets thrown in jail for 20 years for uh, selling a half an ounce of weed on the street. So, yeah. of course, we could take federal National Guard troops and, and, and destroy the legal weed industry in an incredibly aggressive way. We're not going to do that. It's just not going to happen. And if anything, things are going the other way, even for in the United States, a crisis on on drugs that are actually killing people. Yeah. Uh, and still, we haven't been able to to reduce their consumption. So mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, the way to do it is on the legal weed side to make that product allow that product, I would say, rather uh, be more competitive. Yeah. And, you know, you touched on something just earlier that. Um, bears mentioning, you know, regulators are not a monolithic body. When I worked with, uh, you know, assisted the government of Peru writing the regulatory framework for that country, I dealt with six different ministries or departments, you know, including agriculture, transport, interior, which dealt with security, which would be like the uh, homeland security here, uh, production, foreign affairs, finance, health. So I guess, you know, eight, uh, as I just think about it that all had input and already had existing laws and regulations on the book that everything had to be standardized to, to because it had to come into line. Um, you know, but all that being said, as that happens, and we get through the process and, you know, the legal, the federal legalization happens, are we going to see the industry really evolve as it did? You know, we touched on wine, but wine and liquor, where there's some very large national organizations that maybe even international, and there's some very strong small companies that really perform above their weight or get really great name recognition and offer a standard high standard product everywhere. Or is it really going to be dominated, you know, by one or the other? Uh, I see the variety. The yeah. 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 Agreed. We're, we're going to yeah. see that evolve. It, they, they have no choice but to evolve in that direction. There will be, but how long do there you will think be a take? craft market and there will be a mainstream market. How long will yeah. it take? That's a good question. Yeah. And, and, and we're that's already a key one for investors, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Knowing, knowing which, which way to go. And we've had headline uh, throughout North America, we've had the headline cases of, of, uh, for cannabis uh, standards, uh, relatively large companies uh, uh, having to retrench. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, some people uh, think is, is there will be, be lots of vertical integration. Certain parts of the food industry are vertically integrated, certain parts of the wine industry, for example, where a winery will grow some of its own grapes. But for the most part, the larger wine companies globally the larger beer beer companies. Nobody thinks uh, beer companies ought to be big in the barley business. You know, you mm -hmm. grow a lot of barley in Alberta and in yeah. Colorado, and even some in California, but it's or, or South Dakota. But 
those farms aren't owned by beer companies. And there's no particular reason to think that cannabis marketers or processors will, will be in the cannabis farming business. They might be in some places. Uh, I know uh, the biggest tomato processors in the world, and a few of them grow a few tomatoes, partly just to make sure they know, since they buy a lot of tomatoes, they want to have enough presence in, this, in the growing of tomatoes to know how it's done. But they specialize in smashing tomatoes and yeah. just like and a, a gummy bear maker is going to specialize there. Yeah. yeah just like in I any other it's business, it's focus that wins. Sorry, Robin, last focus, word. Yeah. Focus that wins is a, is a great mantra. And I, I, uh, I was going to add that I think from an investor perspective, I think the smart investors are going to be the, uh, uh, the, the more risky investment is to invest in a, in a brand that's trying to be the, the leading craft craft weed in whatever uh, whatever region you're coming from, and I think that the the folks who are trying to bring the price down and trying to figure out how to make weed more efficiently and uh, compete with illegal weed on the lower price points, those are going to be the ones that are going to be the safer investments. Uh, and it, it's not just a matter of scale; it's just a matter of whether your focus as a business is is on trying to bring down prices, bring down costs and therefore bring down prices as opposed to promoting your stuff as the most elite, you know, product out there. So, uh, so, and that's, and that goes for any other agricultural industry. Absolutely. Gentlemen, we are out of time for today, but I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Green Peak. I really enjoyed your book, Can Legal Weed Win? And I encourage everybody to go out and uh, get a copy and read it and learn some really interesting uh, perspective and facts about the industry, where it's going. But uh, joint, you know, we were pleasure to have welcomed uh, both of you to the show today and uh, look forward to talking again. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much, Richard. Have a great day. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back again next week. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.